You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. Hey, today we are talking hookup culture and the current collegiate hookup culture with Dr. Aditi Paul, the author of the book by that same name, The Current Collegiate Hookup Culture. So we're going to find out what is happening in college. I can tell you all about my hookup experience in college. <laughs> what was that? It was non-existent other than you. That one night? That one night. The one Thank time? God, you hooked up with me. There were people who hooked up with you before me. Very few. There was that exhaust pipe incident. <laughs> there was a banana peel. There was... You used to hang out at a bar called Hooterville. I did. What? Hooterville, The Rock. And was it $2 drinks? It was. Yeah. Hey, don't knock the $2 drinks. I'm pretty sure you worked at a place that was $2 drinks. Yeah, I bartended and I wait no, I waitressed at a at a bar called My Apartment and it was $2 drinks. And as a waitress, you could sell back then like $3,000 a night and there were a gazillion of us waitresses. People could dr- when it's $2 drinks, people can drink. Well, you you can waste drinks when they're $2. You don't care cuz it's 2 bucks. You didn't waste drinks. I didn't waste drinks. I had no money. You let like, you I'm drink going people's... out tonight with $6. You drank people's <laughs> leftover drinks admitted. <laughs> no, no, but I had a friend that did that. We had a friend that did that recently. Who? Don't you remember? No, where were we? Mike. Yeah, I know we it's Mike, out. but I don't remember Of course where. we don't. We're throwing Mike under the bus here. We were out and no, in his defense, he accidentally grabbed a drink he thought it was his drink and they just started drinking it i don't remember i this. don't think he stopped drinking it but he drank somebody else's drink well you know two dollar drinks all right so two dollar drinks can often lead to <laughs> other things and that's what we're going to be discussing today before we get to that a big shout out to adamandeve.com they are still offering 50 percent off almost any single item plus free shipping free goodies so Go get your vibrators, go get your latex wear, go get your sex pillows, go get your rotating butt plugs, go get your lube, go get your nipple clamps, adamneve.com, code Dr. Jess. And now let's get into it. Joining us now is Dr. Aditi Paul, a dating and relationship researcher, a professor based in New York City. She uses her dual background in technology and relationship science to examine how dating apps are transforming people's personal and sex lives. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Jess. Now, how did you get into tech and sex and relationships? Are you ready for the most uninspiring answer? It's I, I think <laughs> people think that like there's going to be like this divine intervention. Then one day it just came to me. It honestly didn't. I started doing my research in online dating. And even for that, I chanced upon it. It was during my PhD program. And I just had to get a research paper out there. And I found out this big research uh, data set that some other researchers had collected and I crunched up the numbers and I saw that, you know, online dating is all good, but people are, it's just a revolving door process. Like we've heard people go into online dating, get really dejected, you go into the talking phase and you're just so pissed off with the entire humanity and then you're like, it's out of yourself. But when you're on the dating apps, you also do something called hookup. So I knew about this term my students used it but I didn't know what the heck they're talking about so I did what every nerd would do launch into a whole literature review and I started reading books and I progressively realized that nobody was talking about how dating apps have transformed this already existing sex cesspool that we have in college campuses and I wanted to examine that that did 
apps like Tinder and Grindr add fuel to fire in the already existing hookup culture that we have in college campuses? Has it opened the gate of sexual exploration for populations that didn't have that ability before dating apps? So that kind of made me progress into that area of sex and tech. You didn't dream of it from when you were a little girl, but you're in it now. You're neck deep, balls deep, as Brendan would say, Ah! into it. Let's talk about hookup culture. We know that we have a broader range of choices in terms of how we hook up, whether we hook up, how we date, how we have sex, if we opt to abstain. And we see oftentimes what I, what I see in, in terms of the headlines as conflicting information, right? We see information that young people, let's just say Gen Z or Gen Z for my, my Canadian folks because I'm Canadian, are, are having more sex than ever, more partners than ever. But then we see headlines that they're having less sex than ever. And so, you know, my conclusion is that some people are having a whole lot of it. Some people are having absolutely none of it. We have more, for example, 27-year-olds who are abstaining from sex and have never had anything that they define as sex at the age of 27. And then we have young people who are opting in to hooking up. So what is the landscape of hookup culture in college today? This is something that I also grappled with that, you know, what is the truth? Like, are are you are you fucking or not? That That's the big question that we had. And the idea behind hookup culture is also something called pluralistic ignorance, where you think I'm having sex and I think you're having sex, but you're not having sex. I'm not having sex, but because I think you're having sex, I'm going to have sex. So the imagined peer pressure that you have sometimes lures us into or forces us into having sex which we didn't really want to have to begin with but we thought that I need to do this because everybody else is doing it when in reality nobody is so I think there's there's that going on in college campuses when you enter a college campus people think oh my gosh this is the time the four years of debauchery I need to cash in because after that it's going to be nine to five it's going to be boring so people buy into that idea and sometimes have sexual encounters that they really didn't want to and that doesn't really change from generation to generation it was there when we were young it's there when generation Gen Z is young as well. The thing that has changed with Gen Z that millennials or Gen Xers or boomers didn't have is expressing their sexuality through means that we didn't really have when we were growing up. So for example, expressing their sexuality online or coming out online and opening that gate of sexual exploration, not so much as having sex. And the definition of sex has also changed. I mean, you have things like soaking. Is that even sex? Brandon? What's soaking? Okay. Am I going to be the person who tells you about soaking? I feel so happy right now. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm going to say something to Dr. Sex. Sex with Dr. Jess, that's amazing. So this is something that Mormon kids do, where because Mormonism professes that you should not have sex, uh, just abstain from it. So there's going to be a guy and a girl who are having sex, but since the guy cannot like... I don't know, can I use the word pound? (laughs) Yeah, like penetrate or... Yeah, you can penetrate, but you cannot like go in and out. So there will be a third person on the bed that will rock the bed to simulate the action that we would do if we were having sex. So that is soaking. So you're literally soaking your penis in your partner's vagina while a third person is leaping on the bed simulating the sexual act. So you're you're allowed to penetrate but you're not allowed to go in and out. Like you're yeah, not allowed to. you're not allowed to go in and out. So that that simulation is done by a third person who's just jumping on the bed and you're going in and out. So Well, first of all, that sounds super fun. I want to be the jumper. <laughs> Obviously, I want to be the jumper. Num- right. Number 1 jumper, number 2 penetrator, number 3 
I'd be the receptive partner. But anyhow, that's my order. Is this actually happening, though? In, 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 I could see it happening for fun, but is it happening in the religious, you know, abstinence sense? I am not Mormon. I have not done my research on Mormon kids, but I have been on podcasts from Mormon country uh, or hosted by Mormon country hosts in Utah. And it, it is a thing. It is definitely a thing. And all of this is to say that who defines what sex is? Kids don't even consider oral sex as sex. So if you are thinking about did you have sex, they might have had it, but then they don't qualify it as such, which brings down the count of the number of sexual partners. So so, because we're obsessed with that, aren't we? We're obsessed yeah. with having not too high, not too low body count. I don't even like that language, but it's there. Yeah. Uh, and and of course, sex varies from person to person, especially for those of us who are queer, who are having sex that maybe isn't, you know, we always, there's this old, you know, notion of virginity, the notion yeah. of like a penis going inside a vagina. Well, some of us, that's not how we so-called lost our virginity. That's not how yeah. we had our early or later sexual experiences. So you actually did re research around religiosity. And I think in your findings, there was some, some suggestion that religiosity doesn't affect sexual permissiveness or behavior or how liberal you are sexually can you can you kind of explain that i hope i'm explaining that properly <laughs> yeah absolutely because then there's conflicting research again where people have found support for the hypothesis that if you're religious then you're not going to have sex and people have found uh, the alternate hypothesis to be also true that religiosity or or the the extent to which you ascribe to your religion will have no bearing on the amount of sex that you're going to have and there's truth to both sides of the story, I did not find. In my research, I didn't find that there was a link. Particularly, there was a Washington Post article about sex-positive Christians, and 133 students in my data set identified as Christians. And I asked them a whole bunch of questions to, to measure their sexual permissiveness. Some of the questions were, casual sex is okay. I would like to have sex with as many partners as I want. Having sex outside of marriage is okay. And more than half of the participants agreed or extremely agreed with with these statements to show that their attitudes are highly highly liberal so they're sexually liberal and I and I think I read this somewhere that even though there is this whole divide between like the right-wing method like ideology and the left-wing method ideology overall we are progressing into a society which is more liberal than our previous generation so even the right-wingers are more liberal than their predecessors if that made sense so Yes, you can be religious, but you can also be queer. You can be religious, but you can also have sex. They're not they're not creating that cognitive dissonance that we think it should create. Both of those ideologies can coexist. Well, I wonder if we're eroding away at the notion that anything to do with sex also has to do with morality. And of course, there's morality in sex because there's human interaction. But for me, morality is about how you treat people, how you make people feel, how honest you are, not about the types of sex you're having or the number of partners you're having or how you're having sex. I'm interested. So if religiosity isn't necessarily holding people back sexually... And I guess I should also we should also acknowledge that just because you are sexually liberal in your attitudes doesn't necessarily mean you're sexually liberal in your behaviors. Right. Uh, and that probably applies regardless of religiosity. But you did find that membership in Greek memberships, what do yeah. you call them? Um, fraternities and sororities. Fraternities and sororities, yes. I think they're a bit more common in the States than here, but I'm sure we have them in Canada as well. That can affect attitudes towards sex, engagement in sexual behavior, and the likelihood of hooking up. What did you find there in terms of frats and sororities? I know I, I've seen... Okay, here's the, here's the story. I 
I immigrated to the United States from India. And I mean, you know, Canada is right up there from the US, but you do get your information of what the college campus culture is. Like if I have to ask you, like, what do you think a typical college campus culture is in the US? How would you describe it? And where are you pulling this information from? Oh, me? Yeah. I, I think I would be thinking about what I've seen. So just so personally, I didn't have a, a typical university experience because I went to the University of Toronto, which is in an urban center. I didn't live on campus. I certainly would never have considered a, a sorority or a fraternity just because it wouldn't have been a fit for me. Yeah. Uh, so I never, you know, for example, I didn't really go to any college or university parties because I was working at night. I worked in the bar. Those were my parties, but they weren't college bars. So my idea is what I've seen on television, to some degree what I've heard from friends. Like example, I just watched HBO's Sex in College, which I thought was a kind of a, I really enjoyed that show actually, or HBO Max, sorry. So yeah, I think my ideas are from the media. I picture people drunk and I picture people, some people hooking up, some people staying home. Obviously, I imagine just like practically speaking that people are doing their own thing. Like there's people who stay home and study and there's people who are out partying every night and there's people who are balanced. What, what are you looking I, at me? I'm at looking at you saying, do you not remember uh, doing some work in Jamaica and the spring break madness? To me, that was yes, uh, representative of what I assumed American colleges and, and universities, the frat life was, it was madness. Yes. Like it was how much booze can we consume in the shortest period of time and how much, like what's the craziest or, or most ridiculous thing that I can think of doing right now and I'm going to do it and all my friends are going to encourage me and that's exactly what it was. Like it, it was... It was a week of insanity. That's so true, actually. And we were actually down there for a month, several years in a row, uh, working spring break. I forgot about that. And we would have interacted with, I would say, Thousands. yeah, 5,000 a week, 5,000 students a week. And it was madness. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's exactly what it is, right? I mean, when you are a part of a fraternity or a sorority, I had secondhand information of what fraternities and sororities were because I used to be a graduate student in Michigan State. And, and it's a huge college party town. And I used to teach a lot of these students who were part of sororities and they would always have things like socials. And then some fraternities and some sororities were like sister and brother. So they would always like host parties together. And one of the reasons why the number of hookup partners that these kids who belong to fraternities and sororities have is because they have more access to events. They have more access to places where just like you described, people are just drunk on alcohol. You have conventionally beautiful people. You know, you're thinking about size zero blonde women who are the stereotypical sorority sister. And then you put all of these hormone-induced, alcohol-soaked individuals with no modicum of irrational thinking into a party pit like what do you get you're getting what you see in movies you're getting just ridiculous number of sexual encounters and 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 drunken hazed sexual encounters so that that is one of the reasons why the number of hookup partners that sororities and fraternity people had was higher than a non-greek member and there's a whole bunch of gatekeeping that happens in these parties as well that is not everybody has access to these fraternity parties not everybody has access to these sorority parties so you need to know someone to get in and it's the same as you know getting into a club if you're a stag male if you have four females then like your chances are higher so that kind of hierarchy that kind of social class does play out in these predominantly heterosexual predominantly white spaces that is fraternities and sororities so yeah more access to 
desirable partners, racial homophily, alcohol, everything together gives rise to a higher number of hookup partners that these people have. Now, I think I read in your findings that when people are hooking up with somebody they know, they're more likely to practice safer sex. So I presume that means, you know, condom and barrier use than if they meet online. Is that accurate? And with the Greek membership, does the increased number of hookup partners also come with increased use of barrier methods or safer sex or not so? Overall, uh, what I have seen among Gen Z is the predominance of practicing safe sex. That is overall, they are very conscious about their health, which I thought was extremely positive. That is, okay, we, we have done a good job and we cannot just give credit to Gen Z. Gen Z is cashing in on the fuck-ups that we have done, right? Like we have fucked up and we have given them advice that, hey, practice safe sex and, and they're carrying it forward. And it's it's wonderful to see. What I did see in online hookups and this cues more toward the LGBTQIA plus community of having the predilection of having riskier sexual behaviors. And this is something that was very interesting. Out of people who didn't practice safe sex, a percentage of them were lesbians. Now, if you are thinking about woman-on-woman sex or lesbian sex, what is what is our awareness about safe sex? Dental dams. I haven't ever seen dental dams represented in, in main popular media. The only conception that I have about safe sex is contraception and condoms. That's all we know. So we cannot just like brush everybody together into a category that, okay, if you just meet online, then you're going to have unsafe sex. Who are the people who are having who are meeting online and and do they have the knowledge or have we made it mainstream because i for sure i don't know about you but i have never seen dental dams represented in in popular culture and and i was on a podcast with a sex therapist and she showed me a dental dam and i'm like this is this is tricky to use <laughs> right and the reality is for oral sex many people are not using um, they're not using not that using. yeah no yeah. and safer sex absolutely excludes queer sex right yeah. we're never talking about anything almost never talking at least especially in the schools about anything beyond a penis going in, into the vagina reducing the risk of pregnancy yes of course reducing the risk of stis but we are leaving all the types of sex that so many queer people engage in out of the equation there's also i think the notion that oral sex is no risk because yeah. With HIV, for example, the risk is much, much lower. You know, the Canadian AIDS Treatment Information Exchange will classify it as, you know, basically no risk for HIV, but that doesn't mean that it's no risk for, I mean, it's a negligent risk, so it's not actually no risk, but it, there's still risk for all the other STIs. And then having an STI, another STI, and unbeknownst to many of us, because the most common symptom, of course, is no symptom at all, also puts us at greater risk for HIV. So we have to really, in the end, we have to go right back to improving sex education across the board and queering. Mm. sex education because we're leaving people out and we're putting populations that are already at risk because they're forced to the margins or we're forced to the margins at further risk. So that yeah. that's an interesting, interesting finding. Another thing I read in your findings is that career-minded students are less likely to engage in hookups. Are they like at home studying? What is going on with them? There could be a couple of things. Yeah, they might not go to those parties on the weekends and just be at the library because they have higher career ambitions. They could also be nerds like me who don't 
don't get invited <laughs> to be honest with them i'm like yeah invite me i'll go um and and they could also not subscribe to the idea that i'm going to squander my time in casual hookups rather i just have somebody to build a relationship with on the other side people who have argued for for the other end of the spectrum that is career minded people will go for hookups because they think as relationships as a distraction so hmm. i'd rather satisfy my bodily needs and just keep it low key while going for my career than you know have this other element in my life to foster a relationship with so like both things can be true that's the thing about social science research though like both things can be true it depends on what you find to be true at that at that time i do want to go back to having unprotected or risky sex something mm-hmm. that increases our chances of having risky sex is sexting and sexting through snapchatting the snapchatting is a huge thing among gen z where they're trying to keep that constancy of communication with their hookup partners and like just sharing banal things but also sharing some sexy thirst traps you know some some sexy messages so in my research i saw that students who reported sexting with their hookup partners were 193% more likely to escalate their hookups from makeout sessions to protected or unprotected sex so that just goes to show the importance of acknowledging the role that digital communication plays among among the gen z landscape where they're building their intimacy through things or through mechanisms without even meeting each other face to face so that when they do meet each other face to face they're escalating it at a much higher speed. Hmm. And that's just the norm, isn't it now? Building connections online whether they be sexual or business or social so much so that you feel like you know the person by time you meet meet up in person. I know a lot of older people are freaked out by and I'll use that term broadly older, you know, by sexting, by, you know, sending sexy pictures, by sending sexy messages, by apps that have, you know, photos that disappear, but of course you can always screen grab them. How do we I think reassure generations anyone beyond Gen Z or Gen Z that the kids are okay? Like they're doing okay as you said, they're practicing safer sex. We've got certain contingents that are more likely to perhaps engage in risky behaviors and we can do a lot with that in terms of sex education. But we also have folks who are opting out and also the language has shifted. So when we say we're hooking up, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting drunk at a party and grabbing a partner. Oftentimes our hookup partners are people we know, people with whom we have many friends in common. So I'm curious if the behavior has always existed but the language has changed. Can you tell us a little bit about where we're finding our hookup partners, what these relationships actually look like because although as you mentioned greek memberships increase your chances of having you know more hookup partners it's not like everyone's just grabbing a partner and you know swapping them out each friday and saturday night Yeah. Something that the previous generation and this has happened with our generations as well, right? Where the previous generation always has this moral uh, dilemma about us that somehow we are compromising the sanctity of what a relationship stands for. That I mean, you know, a, a kiss meant something for them, you know, holding hands meant something for them. Right now it's like nothing means nothing anymore. That's the common vibe that we get from each generation. Boomers face Gen Xers faced it from boomers, millennials faced it from Gen Xers, Gen Zers are facing facing it from us and it doesn't change even gen z is going to inflict the same trauma to the generation that's coming after them what is happening though and what i have found out through my research is it's not that dates are becoming meaningless they're becoming more meaningful and i'll tell you why because 
when we went out on a date that was our first instance of interacting with this person who we think we might build a relationship with what they're doing is they have a whole relationship phase even before the date hits so they have been hanging out they have been chatting they're sussing this person out so when they actually do go out on a date that becomes a hallmark experience for them so dates have become not less meaningless but more meaningful because they have this entire other relationship phase that they eating it and they're keeping it low key i'm just hanging out with you and a part of that hanging out becomes sexual exploration and why wouldn't you do that because now we have medical advances at our disposal that enables us to practice safe sex we have the social narrative shifting around sex that this is something that we do it doesn't have to define us so when you have that freedom to explore why wouldn't you do that so that freedom is freaking us out not their sexual act that's really interesting and so when we think about generations above us or older than us freaking out, I think we can't ignore the topic of sugaring and sugar dating. This is something you also addressed in, in your book. Uh, you talked about the fact that sugaring is becoming more popular among college students with more than 10% of your sample living in a sugar baby type relationship to pay for kind of discretionary expenses. And some of them are hooking up, some of them are having sex, some of them are doing other types of things. Again, I know that sex means different things to different people, but can you tell us a little bit about what you found around sugar dating? Mm. Yeah, this this blew my mind, and and I don't know if she's listening. Hopefully, she's not. I I got to learn about sugaring through one of my students, and she was a first generation Asian American student, and she would always come to class like highly dressed, and she is like, "Don't fuck with me," energy, and I, I was intimidated by her being her <laughs> teacher. And then she was very straightforward with me. She said that you know I'm the first person who's going to college from my family. My parents didn't support my decision of going to New York. So she did take to sugaring and her Instagram feed was popping like she had Balenciaga, she had Gucci, she went to Aruba and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing and what am I doing being your teacher? Like, I want your life. So she got that through through sugaring and sugaring is becoming more normal and it's working the way sex work works. That is, you don't just go willy nilly into sex work. You see another friend doing it. And that friend ropes you in. And that's exactly how sugaring works in college campuses, where your friends, somebody has tried it, somebody has made like a quick $500 by sending their picture of their feet to their sugar daddies. And then you start off as a joke. And through that joke, it becomes a, a source of income. But here's the catch. If you go to these sugar dating websites, they will position sugar dating as this thing of empowerment, that sugar babies are not young people who are just looking to make money they are trying to build their relationships on their own terms and sugar daddies are not just throwing money you are the boss of your income so like you figure out so it's a very it's got a very empowerment narrative to it and another tactic that sugar dating sites uses they cash in on the crippling debt that American college students have. That is, it's its in the trillions right now. And if you hear it in the news too, right? I mean, debt partnering programs. So sugar dating sites like Seeking Arrangement, and the, I think they might have changed it. They position it as a, a finance relief program for your college debt. But in reality, when I asked students, why are you doing sugar dating? A very small percentage of them said that to pay off loans because their loans are taken care of by you know, banks or their parents, but they are using these funds is 
to enjoy the finer things in life, to go out for drinks, to go out for parties. And in exchange of that, they're giving their sugar daddies and sugar mamas a GFE or a BFE, that is a girlfriend experience or a boyfriend experience. And that could include having sex with them. That could include just sexting them. That could include going to parties with them, et cetera, et cetera. But they're making bank. Like $1,500 per month is a pretty good sum of money. I have a question about that. What What do you find in based on your study? Like what's the age difference between the sugar daddy or, you know, the sugar, you know, the one, the two partners? Is there an average age difference? I didn't ask that, but I'll tell you this. Uh, when you're, okay, this is another question because I always ask like, I get into professor mode a lot. So if I have to ask you, Brandon, like what, what, how do, what do you picture a typical sugar baby looks like? What would you say? I mean, I only think of it now based on what you've experienced. I think somebody in their 20s, like, you know, attractive, looking for somebody, you know, that's what I think of. In their 20s, attractive. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, and and uh, describe a little bit more of their bodily characteristics. Like, what are you what are you thinking about? I mean, I think of a, a woman who's, you know, just very sexy. Like, I don't know. Like, depending what you're looking for, you know, n- nice figure. If it's a if it's a guy, I think he's probably he's probably pretty muscular or jacked. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Am I going down the right lane here? You you are partially because in my head I was also like, oh, it has to be this petite, young, nineteen, twenty year old woman. Straight guys are also being sugar babies. Some gay guys are being sugar babies. So that is very interesting to me because that means that gay or bisexual or queer men are sugar babies for possibly older closeted men. That could be one way that they're uh, sugaring. That is your, for sugar daddies, they are much older. They have possibly calcified their identity as a straight male with a family, but they also are queer on the inside and they never had that. On the real side. On the real side. side. And and they're looking at sugaring as a way to explore that. And and we have sugar babies who are gay men and, and sometimes even straight men. You know, so I've known so many people who have sugared on both sides, actually. And when I was, I guess it was right when I finished college, there was a big group of young women who were just a couple of years younger than me who were all sugar babies. And they took it very seriously. This was a career or part of their career. I mean, we have many careers now. They were very good at their jobs. They knew how to be charming. They knew how to be funny. They were very brilliant so they could, you know, mix in a room of people and talk about a broad range of topics. Yes, absolutely. Sex was a part of it. Uh, Partying was a part of it. And this is just one group. In fact, I, I interviewed at least a couple of sugar babies previously on the podcast if people want to go back and, and listen to those interviews. I've also known uh, on my end only straight men in their, I think, mid-40s to mid-50s who have also had sugar baby relationships with younger women so who are also college students. And so I've kind of just watched it play out. I Obviously, I believe sex work is sex work uh, or sex work is work. I also believe people ought to do what works for them. And I've seen it work out uh, really well for many people. Mm-hmm. Just I mean, have I seen some unsavory stories? Of course, just like I've seen some very sad stories in 
monogamous dating marriage, right? So there's like happy and sad and everything in between in all types of relationships. But I'm glad you didn't leave this out because this is a common piece of the equation. So you said that 10% of the students that you interviewed had tried sugar babying. You said that only three in 10 of them had sex with their benefactors. So what were the other 70% doing? Just like I said, I mean, giving them the girlfriend experience or the boyfriend experience. So this could be even just sexting them or sending having a sexually charged interaction without so much as having sex or escorting them to parties, going on yachts with them. So it could be a myriad of things. I mean, I could go on a yacht today. That sounds that sounds pretty good. Although I, I don't want to discount the fact that this is real work, right? Like a girlfriend, exp- I think about how much work it is to be in a relationship, to be at someone's side. <laughs> no, this is this is real work. And, and you mentioned that some people kind of start and just send a photo as a joke. And then, but this is no joke. Then they realize this is actually something that requires my investment. Mm-hmm. Now, one last thing I, I'd like to touch on. So you mentioned that you came from India. Did you come to go to school or you came prior to that. I know I I came to go to school. Yeah. Okay. So you were an international student. So you did study specifically international student behavior and you looked at international students and how they hook up and how it it can be different than folks who are born in the States. And I think that, you know, for the Canadian listeners, the data is somewhat similar. We have some similar cultural crossover north and south of the border, but you found that international students mostly hook up with other international students why is that why might that be yeah (laughs) it makes a lot of sense if you think about so i use the analogy of uh, humans going to mars and then let's say you and brandon you go to mars and then you see martians do something and then you're like okay listen i think we need to do this to become martian so you do it with each other to become a part of the martian culture and that's exactly what we did that is we we come to the u.s thinking about or looking at or watching movies like Neighbors or I mean, I'm going to date myself very badly. But my idea of the American college culture was spring break parties that I used to see on MTV and mm-hmm. American Pie. And I'm like, listen, like, forget about getting a fucking PhD. I'm going to go there for a party. And that's what I see. That's what you see. But right now, college students are getting their their dose of what American college campus looks like through social media, where pretty much the vibe is the same. But when you come here, you, you realize that uh, first, I was not just an international student. I was a graduate international student. Okay. So I just couldn't go ham on on partying and, and participate on that de- on the debauchery level because I was also a PhD candidate who had to teach undergraduate students. So I had that dual role, so I had to balance both. So the, the middle ground I chose, the safe space to explore my sexuality and my orientation to the American culture was through dating apps. And that's exactly what I thought would happen, that okay, international college students, they don't have access to parties, but they want to hook up, so they're going to gravitate more toward dating apps. That I didn't see happening. Part of the reason could be because my data set was also very limited for international students but also another part of it could be because when you come as an international student you're put into a group of other international students who are just as clueless than you and just just as likely to want to assimilate in in the American culture so you see something people do and then you do it with each other if you think in terms of like Thanksgiving dinners. If you go to any immigrant household, you'll see that we all do Thanksgiving, but we'll have our own dishes. We're not just bringing unseasoned turkey. I'm sorry to say that. <laughs> you know, my uh, so my mom jerks the turkey. We put yeah, jerk right? season on the yeah. turkey. It's like, we're going to have your turkey, but we're jerking it. <laughs> it's so good. It's Jamaican so turkey. Yeah. <laughs> like, so we, we, too, we too jerk. 
<laughs> but in another way. So <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So so that that's that's how you that's how you understand that we're participating in an American tradition, but with each other to assimilate. Is it a matter of safety for some people that like that we feel more comfortable with with international students, or that we or that with other people who seem like us, or that, or is it just that we're not invited to the other parties? Like you, I can see you're sad you didn't get invited to the parties. But. Very sad. <laughs> like that is one of the reasons why I have done this research. You know, now the truth comes out. But <laughs> I, as, you know, as a graduate student, yeah, you're when you go to, even as as an American or a Canadian, when you go to graduate school, that's social suicide. Like now you're in the nerd zone. You're in research paper mode. You're in you're in that track. So you anyways your your social circle dwindles. Even if you're an American or a Canadian student going to graduate school in a Canadian and American university. Now add to that that you are an international student. So your social circle is shrunk even more and you don't have those connections to go to parties. It's completely different for college students who come here as undergrads because they have access. So my my experience was painted by that framework of me being international, being in graduate school and also playing the dual role of a teacher and a student in my PhD program. Yeah, that that makes sense. So let let me ask you this. What should we be doing about sex in college? So I think we, we have a bit of a broad, you know, you might be listening and you might be a parent of somebody who's eventually going to go off to college or you might be in college right now. We certainly have many Gen Z listeners. You might be Gen Z yourself. So what should we, what's the takeaway here? Like what can we do differently? What can we do better? Should we keep doing what we're doing? How do we support students to have fulfilling, meaningful, pleasurable, however you define that sexual and dating encounters in college? Based on my research, this is for all straight women out there. Masturbate. Start with that. Explore yourself. Figure out your own sexuality. Figure out what you want. To take away that shame or that perversion that media is so just so adamant on making female sexual pleasures sound like that or portray like that. So start with self-knowledge, right? Explore yourself. Understand what you like. Understand what you don't like. Journal it. Get confident. And then go out there and explore that sexuality with somebody else because thank god we live in a generation right now when where sex is becoming a topic which does not have a lot of shame it's becoming normal when you were talking about like you know sexting and the and the risks attached to it there was a recent research study which shamed people who leak nudes than the person whose nudes have been leaked so we are living at a good time we are living at a really good time so first start with self-knowledge and then have sex because you want to have sex not because you think other people are having sex because guess what not everybody's having sex nobody is out there being Hugh Hefner or or like you know Megan the Stallion in their lives people are very good at demonstrating something on social media but don't fall into that peer pressure take it at your pace but make sure that you're keeping your sexual pleasure as priority number one well I'm glad you said that because I also I mean you have such a rich body of data here we didn't get to talk about everything but you mentioned that twice as many women report performing oral and faking orgasms and so some of these gaps that we thought might have begun to narrow as we started talking more about sex, as sex toys became more accessible, as sex education has improved but also not improved in certain areas, we're still seeing these gaps by gender, specifically, I would presume, around hetero- heterosexual mm-hmm. men and women. Um, I think your data also said men are twice as likely to have an orgasm yeah. than women 
in these hookups. And so, yeah, we need to make sure that regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of whether it's a hookup or you're in something long term, because many of many young people are still dating long term. Let's, yeah. you know, oh, acknowledge yeah. that we we need to focus on everybody's pleasure, all involved. And when you mention, you know, move at your own pace and not fall into the pressure. That's such an important piece because you brought up in the beginning the concept of pluralistic ignorance, right? The fact that many of us privately reject something but publicly embrace it because we're told that everybody is doing it. So mm. whether you're hearing that everybody's abstaining or everybody's having orgies or everybody's dating and falling in love or everybody's hooking up, don't believe the hype. Think about your own sexual values and what they mean to you. Uh, and I always go back to, and you, I, I believe we did a whole episode on sexual values, but what does sex mean to you in terms of the emotional, the relational, the physical, the you know social, perhaps the spiritual, and there are no right answers. But if you can answer those questions, if you can know, you know what, sex is just something physical to me. It's, no, it's, not, um, it's not about you know, intimate connection cool then you know what you want or if you say sex is something that's really spiritual to me it's about this human connection that takes time to development then you can again guide yourself down that path that works for you so thank you so much for your research thank you so much for your insights it's been really great chatting with you oh thank you so much i mean and the way you've summarized it i could have done it I, I couldn't have done it any better than that. So thank you so much, Brandon and Jess, for having me and 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 having this wonderful conversation. I enjoyed my time here. Thank you. We've loved chatting with you. And hopefully people are going to check out your book. Make sure you're following along, DrDTPaul.com. We'll make sure we put the book link as well as the the website links and all that jazz in in the show notes. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And thank you for listening. A reminder that Adam and Eve is still offering that Dr. Jess 50% off almost any single item, plus free shipping, plus free gifts, promo code adamandeve.com, code Dr. Jess. I'm on the website right now, still looking for that rotating butt plug. There are rotating butt I know, I'm just saying, I'm looking for it. If you look hard enough, you will find <laughs> toys that rotate, toys that inflate, toys that curl, toys that vibe, all that jazz, adamandeve.com. Folks, thank you for being here. Thanks for opting to spend your time with us wherever you're at. Have a great one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life, improve your life.